try that again. Good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name is Matt, and uh, I'm excited about being here with you today. I am a little injured, uh, recovering from an elbow surgery, so if you see a, uh, a grimace on my face, it, it may be that I can't believe I said what I just said, uh, or <laughs> it's uh, some pain shooting through my elbow, but uh, Uh, I'm healing, and uh, that's a good thing. Pain is what helps us know that we're alive. (laughs) I've been told that, reminded that. I'm reminding myself of that. Um, But uh, I am excited to to carry on uh, with the discussion that uh, Jeff uh, has us in. Uh, Before we kind of go into uh, our topic for the day, though, this is Memorial Day weekend. And uh, this is an important day in our country. This is not Veterans Day. This is Memorial Day. It started as um, Dedication Day after the Civil War, and it was a time for us to grieve uh, those who were lost, who were casualties of war, uh, not just on the winning side, but on both sides. And uh, I think it's appropriate for us to begin today with a thought towards those who have lost their lives um, And that may be physically, but that could also be emotionally for those veterans who are returning from uh, the battlefield with uh, trauma and with severe emotional anxiety. Uh, It's a time for us to just remind ourselves that our God is a God of peace and that war is a difficulty of this life and uh, we're all affected by it in some way and others more than, than some of us. And so uh, can we just pray? Uh, Lord, we, we come to you today and we're reminded and we're careful to remind ourselves that you are a God of shalom and of harmony and of peace. Lord, we live in a world where uh, it's a difficult thing to understand how we're to respond to the atrocities that happen around us. Lord, I'm thinking of the terrorist attack in Manchester. I'm thinking of the terrorist attack on the Christians in pilgrimage this past week. I'm I'm thinking of all the senseless brutalities and atrocities that go on. And Lord, I'm conflicted this day. I I want to be thankful and I want to uh, give memorial for those who have lost their life, protecting freedom, serving uh, those who are less than or hurt. But I also am conflicted because I understand that, that evil and darkness lies in all of us and none of us are completely innocent, not our nation's. Our people. So I'm conflicted on what we're to do as Christ followers who are first and foremost citizens of your kingdom and then also citizens of this country. And while I'm conflicted on those things, I'm not conflicted on standing with those who have lost so much. Lord, we, we remember today those victims of war, either those who were waging war 
or those who were innocent civilians caught up in it. Lord, any loss of life is a loss from your kingdom. So help us to stand with our friends and even with our enemies who are ravaged by violence and brutality. Help us to wrestle with and grapple with what it is to be a person who stands for the alternative wisdom of your kingdom and the peace that ends violence. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who will restore all and heal all. Help us to be agents of that. In the sweet and yet powerful name of Jesus, we say, amen. So, uh, getting back to our series, last week Jeff picked up on uh, the story of God and the person of Jesus as told by Matthew. And after having taken an in-depth look uh, at a couple of things. So we we started with the book of Matthew, we went through and then uh, we took a stop and we looked at some soul detoxes and uh, some things that... uh, uh, prevented us from being the fertile soil that God's seed, the kingdom seed, needed to be. And so we looked at those, and then we looked at uh, some blind spots that we might all have. And in particular, we took uh, quite a few weeks to look at the blind spot, spot of uh, uh, how the church, uh, church's treatment of women in our society and, and in the history of the church has not always been stellar, and how that Jesus was uh, uh, pro uh, women at all uh, stances and at all times, and that we are to reflect that. And so he picked back up on uh, the Matthew, uh, beginning with Matthew 13, and he talked about Jesus' reception in his hometown. And basically, what's in a name? In other words, Jesus came to his, his hometown, his synagogue, and was preaching, and the people were both amazed and marveled, but at the same time, they're like, hey, isn't this Joseph and Mary's boy? Who is he? Uh, why does he get to say these things to us? And so we talked about what's in a name. And, and with that, we uh, mentioned and Jeff talked about the fact that there need to be these times and these places in our lives where we realize that our name, uh, as those who follow Christ, is not found in what the world would say about us, but rather what the Father God says about us. And he took us back to Matthew, I think it's chapter 3, where he talked about Jesus at his baptismal moment with John the Baptist. And he talked about how uh, baptism was an anchor for our souls, that we are still the beloved. In other words, Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry uh, goes down to his cousin in, in, in the wilderness, the River Jordan, and is baptized And it's there that the father's voice says, this is my son, my beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. And uh, he talked about the importance of that. So we're going to pick up with that idea of belovedness. And we're going to talk a little bit more at length about what it means to have anchors for our soul. These anchor uh, moments, these anchor traditions. We're going to talk about sacramentality this morning for a few minutes of how to remember that we are God's beloved. And we're doing that in uh, chapter 14 of Matthew. Now, real quick, the writer of Matthew 
in the telling of Jesus' story tells an alternative story of what the kingdom is like of this world. So in other words, if Jesus has come to usher in, to inaugurate the kingdom of heaven on earth, then there is this alternative kingdom, this kingdom of the way the world works, policies, politics, power, that Jesus is constantly not just brushing up against, but intentionally subverting. And one of the ways the writer of the book of Matthew lets us in on this uh, dichotomy and this paradox, this tension between these two worlds is by weaving the story of John the Baptist into the story of Jesus. John's a pivotal character, not just because he inaugurated Jesus' ministry with the water baptism, but because in many ways he is the foreshadowing of everything Jesus has got going on. So before Jesus showed up on the scene and began his public ministry, his cousin John eschewed, separated himself from, rejected his priestly role in the institutional religion of the day and went out and started baptizing people, calling them to repentance in a very public place. Now, this is subversive in the utmost. And so we see that, and Jesus is taking part of that. But in Matthew 14, John is going to be a foreshadowing of what Jesus is about to encounter in the rest of his ministry. Now, I'm reading out of the ESV. I think on the screen we're going to have the NIV because we had some technical difficulties. Um, but, but let me just read this to you. At, at the time, Herod the ruler heard reports about Jesus, Herod being the king of that day. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead, and for this reason the powers are at work in him. So he's hearing that Jesus is coming on the scene, and he's saying, hey, this is, this is, this is John the Baptist. Because Herod had a background with John the Baptist. Picking up here in verse 3, For Herod had arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been telling him, it's not lawful for you to have her. So Herod's engaged in some inappropriate uh, ethics uh, behavior sexually with his brother's uh, brother Philip's wife. He's taken her, and John, as the prophet's, speaking to power and saying, that's not right. You shouldn't have her. And so what Herod did is he put him in prison and bound him up. And though Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and she pleased Herod so much that he promised on oath to grant her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. The head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who brought it to her mother, and his disciples came and took the body, buried it, and they went and told Jesus. So here is, in John the Baptist, a brief account of him being called to repentance by, uh, or Herod is being called to repentance by John the Baptist. And as a result, 
John the Baptist has to pay with his life. This is what Jesus will go to have happen to him. We're at a pivotal point where Jesus' fame is high and the author of the book of Matthew is saying, a little foretaste here, he's coming to popularity. You think this might end this way with the people of Israel all saying, yes, this is our king or the institution of the temple being restored and uh, reinvented. Or you might think that Herod might come to the saving knowledge of God and forego the way of the world for the way of the kingdom of heaven. But Matthew is giving us a little foretaste here saying that's not going to happen. Jesus is not going to be able to escape what it means to live in subversion to and in deference to the way of this world. You see, there's a cost that is associated with living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven in this world. And while we may not be crucified, we may not lose our lives in a martyr's sense, we will be forced to deal with the fact That we're citizens first and foremost of another world. So what do we do in these times? Think about it from Jesus' perspective. John is not only your cousin, but and, and this is a strange thing to say, but John in some ways to Jesus was a mentor. He's starting it out before Jesus is. He's going there and doing things and suffering in ways that Jesus is going to have to. That's not saying he's greater than Jesus. In fact, John said, I'm not even worthy to untie sandals. Jesus is the one who has to increase and I must decrease. But for anyone that Jesus had to kind of look up to in some ways, at this point in his life, it's John the Baptist. And here he is hearing Of what's happened from his disciples. Even the son of God. Had to have moments. Where he was able to tell himself. I am beloved. Even the son of God. Had to withdraw from the crowds from time to time. To remind himself. Of his identity, first and foremost, of being God's beloved. So that he might fulfill God's mission and purpose for his life. See, some of us have got it real backwards. And I understand why. I just got done, as many of you know, some of you don't, teaching at a university where we train ministry students. I did this for 15 years plus. And while I'm there, one of the greatest problems that I faced was convincing these young men and women zealous to do something for God that first and foremost, they had to understand who they were in God. Jeff said it last week, and it's worth repeating. We're human beings, not human doings. And what we do, the mission that we're called to, has to flow out of and in union with 
our identity in Christ. So what do you and I do when we come up against the issues, the dangers, the toils, the troubles, the temptations that the world presents us with? How do we remember and how do we stay rooted in, anchored in, as Jeff said last week, in our identity as God's beloved? Well, what I would say is that we have to live sacramental lives. Now, I didn't come up in high church. I grew up uh, very devoted in a very devoted Christian family in a small little rural church in Alabama of Pentecostals. And we definitely worked uh, Catholic or Anglican or Presbyterian or Lutheran or even Methodist. We were backwoods, and that's how we did things. And there's a beauty to some of that. But in high church, those of you who've come from one of those streams of Christianity or denominations I've talked about, there are sacred actions that the church over its history have vetted and have called uh, sacramental. In other words, they are conveyors of grace. Um, put it this way. The term sacrament used in Christian circles refers to certain rites or church ceremonies which are understood to possess a special spiritual significance. At its heart, a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. The Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches recognize seven sacraments. They recognize baptism. They recognize the Eucharist or communion, the Lord's Supper. They recognize uh, confirmation, confession, anointing of the sick, marriage, and ordinations. And typically Protestants only recognize two of these. And we might call them sacraments. We might call them ordinances. We might not call them anything at all, just use them, and that would be water baptism, and it would be communion or the Lord's Supper. Now, the reason that these are important is because they anchor us. They are visible signs of what's happened to us in a spiritual and an inward way. Um, Some of you are familiar with the church father Augustine or Augustine of Hippo. He said again that these sacraments were signs of sacred reality. Signs when applied to divine things are called sacraments. There's some connection between the sign itself and what is being represented. Uh, Baptism involves water, which is a sign of cleansing or purification, thus pointing to the cleansing and purification of the human soul through the grace of Christ. One of my favorite medieval Theologians, Hugh of St. Victor, said this. He says, a sacrament is a physical or material element set before the external senses, representing by likeness, signifying by institution, and containing by sanctification some invisible and spiritual grace. So all that to say this, you and I should avail ourselves of living 
not just from sacrament to sacrament. But we should avail ourselves of living sacramental lives. If I have a problem with the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church, it's not that they have seven or nine or 23 sacraments. It's that they don't have enough. See, the truth of the matter is when we gather together and we sing these songs, and I, and I recognize that AJ has programmed some looping on his pedal, because I'm thinking, how is he playing that piece and that piece? And then I realize, well, I don't think he is. Maybe he's put something on there. And I think of the creativity that God's given AJ. And in that moment, I'm reminded of the creativity of God. And in that moment, I feel God's grace come to me. When Roby uh, runs and grabs my leg with a vice grip that cuts off the circulation... Uh, and I, I, I look into her eyes, and she does this with some of you. She says, I love you, and she hugs you. I'm reminded of just how good our Father God is. And that sacramentality hits home. Or when I'm outside, this is still new to me, six months in, driving to the Walgreens, seeing those mountains coming from flat Florida. I'm reminded of the Creator God. And my moment is filled and imbued with grace. But as we're living those sacramental lives, we need to realize that there are some institutions, there are some actions that carry some significance weight. Some significance, some weightiness to them that maybe are special. They're, they're uh, first among equals, maybe, as far as sacramentality goes. I want to share with you, just in five or ten minutes, and this is going somewhere, um, my understanding of Christ and the sacraments that I have from my childhood. Now, I I come from a Pentecostal background. Uh, Snake handling, one step down, okay? That's pretty much my people. And... uh, I love them. There are, there are streams of Christianity that are very cerebral in their nature. We, we talk about in our theology nights that if you're going to be a holistic Christian or well-rounded Christian, you need to deal with orthodoxy, orthopathy, orthopraxy, which means you have to have correct thinking and thoughts, correct desires and emotions, and uh, correct actions, being God's hands and feet to the world. Whereas a lot of Christianity birthed in the last 500 years is very much uh, Christianity that centers on right thoughts. Us Pentecostals didn't necessarily care too much about thoughts. It was feelings. We're a people of the gut. And I've done my best to uh, demonstrate that for everyone. Um, thank you, TJ. I appreciate that. Uh, but, but the truth of the matter is, is that we were a people who were very engaged with God in our emotions. Emotions are not a bad thing. They come from God. Just like thoughts are not a bad thing. They come from God. Sometimes in Christian circles, we eschew emotions as though they're a bad thing. While we have very prideful thoughts. And we don't talk about that being a sin that much. We need all of them in balance and in submission to God. But when we talked about Jesus, we talked about Jesus in a very... Uh, raw way and about as nuanced as the theology i got as a young person in my small pentecostal church 
was the fivefold purpose of Jesus or ministry of Jesus. And it was easy to remember. It was Jesus as Savior, Jesus as Sanctifier, Jesus as Baptizer, Jesus as Healer, and Jesus as Soon Coming King. That's what Jesus did. Jesus is Savior. Now, in the understanding that I grew up with, that meant that we got to go to heaven if we followed Jesus. If we prayed a prayer and we asked Jesus into our heart, which I'm not sure if that's the left ventricle or the right, or I don't know where that is exactly. But when we made a commitment to Jesus, we were saved. Now, I understand now, after more study, that what salvation means, that word sozo that's interpreted as salvation in the New Testament is, is more meant as healing. We're being healed. We're being uh, healed from the brokenness that sin has called. We're being healed and to be our, our true selves, the selves that God intended for us to be. Um, Maslow would call it our self-actualized selves. Uh, but, but we're being healed and we're being saved in that manner. It's not just about going somewhere. It's also about right here, right now. Not only that, but Jesus is the sanctifier. Now, this is a big one. Salvation for us was not a one-time event. It was not only a one-time event, but it was also a continual process. So it was uh, now, but also yet to come. Just like when you're married, you have to remind yourself that you're in this intimate covenantal relationship. There are those moments that test you. And you have to remember, I, I chose to be with this person. To give my life and to, to love them more than I love myself. And it took uh, uh, mid-course corrections where you have to not only remember that, but you have to grow into it. Does that make sense? I mean, there's the decision to follow Jesus but then there's the ongoing decision to grow and to be the disciple and that we're supposed to be. And so Jesus was not just Savior, but he's sanctifier. He's making us more and more holy as we're deciding to do that, to follow him. Baptizer is a weird one for those who don't grow up Pentecostal. But baptizer for us was not water baptism. Baptizer for us was baptism with the Holy Spirit, second work of grace Basically, what it comes down to is God doesn't just leave you to your own capabilities or devices, but empowers you to be a witness to the world. That's what that means. And then Jesus as healer. Now, this is an interesting thing because I had a really false understanding of healing until about a year ago. Because I grew up in a place where I actually saw God work in miraculous ways. And I believe that. I believe that God can do today what God did then. I think when Jesus says you'll do things greater than even I, that he meant it. I don't believe that that ceased when the Bible was canonized. I believe the Bible is the best thing we got going except for the presence of God. And I believe that God can still do... Let me put it this way. God can do whatever God jolly well pleases. Okay? And my job is not to stand in God's way. But I also grew up in a place where we worshipped sometimes not God, but what God could do for us. 
In a charismatic or Pentecostal background, sometimes the emphasis fell off of the actual healer and it fell on to the healing. It fell on to the miracle. And so what I always understood as Jesus' as healer was actually better uh, described as Jesus as curer. The church is not in the curing business. Church is in the healing business. You might ask, what's the difference? The cure is the result you want. The cure is when cancer goes away totally. The cure is when uh, you couldn't walk and now you can walk. The cure is um, the miracle. Healing is in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the disease, in the midst of the relational fracture, in the midst of the hurt and the pain. The community of God standing with one another, identifying with one another such a way that it takes this atrocity and it redeems it. I had an aunt who was healed. I think I told this. Have I told this story here before? My Aunt Ethel? What a name. I love that name. Need to have more Ethels in the world. My Aunt Ethel was born with juvenile diabetes and she developed uh, rheumatoid arthritis at a very early age. So by the time she had my cousin and she was just into motherhood, she stopped being able to walk. And for about 13, 14 years, she couldn't walk. She rode one of those little scooters. I hated that scooter. When I was young and I was small enough that I could ride on it, I loved it. Right? I'd get on the back and we'd pop willies together and we'd do all those kinds of things. When I got older and I had to keep up with her and she had a battery that I didn't have and she could just keep going, I hated that scooter. My Aunt Ethel was in pain every day of her life. She couldn't walk. Now here's what's crazy. As a young person, I saw her church every single day. Every single day. Either send someone to her or a phone call, or someone came by, someone prayed for her to ask that God would bring her peace and would bring her uh, restoration in her body. Every day, for years, it was just a normal interruption. If you're at Ethel's house, somebody's going to come by, somebody's going to call, you're going to have to stop for about 20 or 30 minutes while somebody agrees with Aunt Ethel that things are going to get better. That was just the deal. Now, what's weird is everybody in the community knew her. It was a small town, much like this, smaller actually than Bryson City, much smaller. And so she was well known. Well, several years, a couple of decades, 15, I don't even remember. I'm horrible with years, but by the time her, her, her son is grown and out of school, she goes one day to a women's luncheon for an evangelist she's never seen. Nobody knows anything. She goes up front in her little scooter. He puts his hands on her and prays for her. And he's as shocked as anybody else when she gets up out of the scooter and she starts running around the church. Made the newspapers. He did all this crazy stuff. Aunt Ethel was healed. Now, her feet were still misshapen. She still had diabetes. She still had rheumatoid arthritis. In fact, she would eventually die two years later of that heart disease. Brought about by all those things. But she could walk. But this is what I want to say to you. As awesome it was for her to be able to walk. 
That's the cure. The healing was every day her dignity being affirmed by a community of people standing with her in the midst of her pain, saying, you're made in the image of God, and we are with you and alongside you. See, that's healing. Jesus can cure and does. But more importantly, we serve a suffering Savior who sits in our pain with us and transforms it so that it becomes our testimony. That's a difficult thing, but it's a true thing. And that's why we have hope. And so not only that, but Jesus is our soon coming king. And we celebrate this by saying that this world is one day going to be restored. Christ is going to come back and all of creation is going to be healed. Shalom or peace and harmony, the way God intended the world to be, will be restored. So for each of these offices of Jesus... Savior, sanctifier, baptizer, healer, soon coming king. There is a sacrament that goes along with it. So let's play a little game. I'm going to give you the office of Jesus and you shout out what you think the sacrament is. The the, uh, outward sign or practice that the church engages with, okay, in order to signify that particular office of Jesus. So if I say Jesus is Savior then we say that that sacrament is, nope, it's what we practice. We've been talking about it a lot today. Water baptism, right? It's it's fine. If we don't know, we're going to all learn together. So this is the interactive part, right? But it's the idea because we go into the watery, we go into the watery tomb and we come uh, up and it's a symbol of the resurrection, we, we die to our old man or woman, and that's in the watery grave. We come out, we're a new creation under Christ. Okay? I'm going to skip sanctification for a second. Let's go to uh, baptizer. Any, any, any Pentecostals or Charismatics in, in the crowd? Background? Yeah? So what was the sign of? It was. It was speaking in tongues. And that's something we're definitely not going to get into today at all. But it's just this idea that the supernatural is active in the in the natural today. Okay? So it was that. How about uh, healing? Anointing with oil. Yep. So bring, bring the sick and the affirmed to the elders of the church and let them anoint with oil and pray for uh, the sick and the prayers of a righteous man. I'll add woman are effective. All right. Okay, and then soon coming king. We do this one often in church too. It is, it's communion. Because we're celebrating in anticipation the supper of the lamb, right? That's going to await us all. Sanctification is one we did all the time. And I wonder if any of you have ever done before. Except maybe Maundy Thursday. It's the washing of feet. See, sanctification... Is demonstrated by the washing of feet for this one reason. When we make our decision to follow Christ, we go public with our faith. We're converted to life with Jesus. We're born anew, born again, whatever terminology you want to use. We have water baptism, which is what we're going to celebrate on June the 11th. And this is not just a get out of church free day. This is church. We're doing, we're, we're, we're going. It's going to be fun. It'll be a picnic. It'll be all those things. But 
We, we want people to be able to go public with their faith, and Deep Creek's the perfect place for it. So water baptism, you are saved unto Christ, as I just mentioned before. But sanctification is that ongoing decision to follow Christ. And here's the truth of the matter. Although we're all washed clean in that water baptism, the truth of the matter is we walk a really dirty planet. There's no way that we're isolated from the world. We're going to come in contact with evil and brokenness. We're going to sin. We're going to have those things happen. Do we need to be dunked again? No, because that's already been done. But what we do need is we need to have our feet washed. So the idea of sanctification is that God has not only saved us, but we're continually being healed. We're continually making the decision to follow Christ. And therefore, we need to have our feet washed from time to time. Now, here's what we're going to do on June the 11th. Not only are we going to gather together with those who want to be baptized and immersed, we're going to dunk them, all right? Hardcore. Uh, Sprinkling's fine, but that's not what we're going to do. We're going to put them under. But when that's going on, for those of us who have been baptized... We're going to take off our shoes and our socks and we're going to step into the water with them. And we're going to remember our baptismal days. And we're going to understand that when the world wants to shout at us the different labels and the different false names that it wants to give us, that we're reminding ourselves, not only daily, but through this special moment and through this sacrament, that we are God's beloved. See, I, I, I really don't know where you're all at today. I, it's something we say a lot, churches. I don't know where you're at this morning. But I know where some of you are at. Some of you are riding high. School's over. Whew. That's mostly for the teachers. <laughs> Parents are like, oh, no. Some of you are in transition. Heavy, big life decisions where you're moving and you got wonderful opportunities, but you're also leaving something wonderful behind. Some of you are dealing with infirmities or sickness. Some of you are still trying to figure out who you are. It's all right. What I want to say to you today, what I know Jeff would say if he was here today is, First and foremost, know above everything else that you are loved by God, that you are beloved, and that no matter what this world wants to sling at you, I I like the way a friend of mine says it. He says, between diapers and depends, what are you going to do with all the fecality that life slings at you? Is it going to be so much poo-poo? <laughs> I'm trying to think of an appropriate term there. Or will it be fertilizer for your soul? In the midst of all that, God is saying, I love you. You are my child with whom I am well pleased.
Exactly. So here's what I want us to do. You guys are going to come up and play a song. Thank you. And I want you to just hear that today. I want you to hear the words of this song. I want you to relish in the fact that God is on our side. I want you to think about today as they're singing. Uh, what 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 mid-course corrections do I need to make? How do I need to repurpose myself, remember I'm beloved, and live into that identity with my actions? And then I'm going to come up and I'm going to lead us in a concluding prayer.